moralizing and clamping down on sex trafficking at global sporting events really does more harm than good. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I don't know about you, but when I think of big international sporting events like the FIFA World Cup, thoughts include questions about the amounts of money spent in those host countries and the variations in financial support from each competitor's home country. Mega events like the World Cup and Olympic Games have for many decades uniquely captured the world's attention. It is kind of fun. After all, spectacles have been a feature of political and cultural history forever. Frankly, I had not been aware of claims that as many as 40,000 women and girls being sex trafficked during these events. That's sure news to me. That never even would have occurred to me. And as with so many other spectacles, what goes on out of the glare of international media spotlights can include disturbing realities. Yet, As we've seen at so many other moments in recent history, panics can be generated, which cause a lot more harm than the allegations of inappropriate behavior. The thought of tens of thousands of women and girls being abused at these events, of course, strikes horror and outrage. But what is the reality? Our guest today has dug deep into the matter, and the focus becomes questions about the motivations and hidden intents of those who spur the panics, what their real goal is. And as with other super emotionally charged panics in our recent history, unintentional harm can be visited on what turns out to be innocence. One thinks of the Assumed to be true allegations of child sexual abuse in the 1980s, the McMartin Preschool hysteria in California. Boy, was that ugly. One reviewer of our guest's new book, Panics Without Borders, says it powerfully reveals how larger political patterns of corruption and the weaponization of false statistics lead to the proliferation of harmful myths which spur moral panics to justify the hyper-policing of sex workers. And though generally hidden away from public view, sex workers are very often victimized without fair recourse, to put it mildly. That same reviewer notes that Mitchell's new book reveals how women become collateral damage under the guise of rescue and protection. Those terms, rescue and protection, are based on an assumption of need for a stronger power to do the rescuing, which, of course, smacks of old-fashioned sexist definitions. And one thing this radio show podcast consistently does is to seek to empower the disempowered. So here we go. The new book we'll be discussing on Keeping Democracy Alive Today is titled Panics Without Borders, how global sporting events drive myths about sex trafficking. Something I bet you never thought about. Our guest today is its author, Gregory Mitchell. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, it's my pleasure. Gregory Mitchell is chair and associate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College. 
place I could never be admitted to. <laughs> His studies focus on sex work, race, and the discourses of sex trafficking, as well as the effects of public policy approaches. A recipient of awards from the National Science Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, the American Anthropological Association, the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations, Mitchell is also the author of numerous book chapters and journal articles, as well as one previous book, Tourist Attractions, Performing Race and Masculinity in Brazil's Sexual Economy. Well, you do look at some fun things. Yikes. <laughs> Mega events like the FIFA World Cup and Olympic Games have for many decades uniquely captured the world's attention. After all, spectacles have been a feature of political and cultural history forever. I hadn't been aware of any claims that 40,000 women and girls being sex trafficked during these events. Your research looks into the causes and motivations of the sources of these allegations. How did you come to write this book? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for uh, having me. Uh, there is an interesting backstory because I began working in Brazil in 2005, I think it was, um, for first a master's thesis in anthropology and then a later a PhD thesis. And that was the data that eventually gave me that, that first book, which was an ethnography or um, uh, intense series of interviews over a period of many years with male sex workers in Brazil and their gringo clients, their foreign uh, gay male mm. clients. And so I had been working in Brazil off and on for about six years. And as that was wrapping up, um, I began to, we knew that the World Cup uh, was going to be coming in uh, 2014 and then the Summer Olympics to Rio in uh, 2016. And so uh, I began to, to notice that we were seeing a lot more policing, a lot more police raids. And mm. uh, pr prostitution is not a crime in Brazil. And what was happening was the police were... Uh, beating, sometimes sexually assaulting, and robbing um, the sex workers in the course of raiding these uh, brothels and other commercial sex venues. Um, and uh, this mm. was oddly being done under the guise of rescue. Uh. Um, and so they would say, well, they just don't understand they're being exploited. Uh, and so they're resisting rescue. And so they would arrest them. And then ultimately, none of them uh, would be charged, but the damage was done. And uh, as I began talking to other colleagues um, in Brazil who studied similar issues, uh, we began to share data and team up uh, so that we could get a, a much better sense of what was actually uh, happening in the run-up to the World Cup. And the short version of what we found is that there's a strange coalition of um, evangelical Christian missionary groups, uh, anti-prostitution, radical feminist groups, as well as neoliberal business developers and um, working hand in hand with local politicians and police, uh, often forming these task forces mm. focused on trying to clean things up mm. in the blighted red light areas. Mm. So really what we're seeing is shut down the brothels um, uh, for the sake of 
stopping this uh, supposed uh, sexual exploitation that they think is going to increase around these events, or they say will, um, they often get a lot of money for this to pad out police budgets for mm-hmm. overtime, buy new equipment and weapons. Um, and then what happens is uh, the trafficking never actually materializes, um, at least around these events. I'm not saying there's not sexual exploitation in right. the sex industry. That's certainly there. But the sex workers become collateral damage in these efforts to clean everything up um, the year or two before one of these events happens uh, so that uh, when the journalists get there and the fans get there, um, everything seems to be, um, you know, uh, presentable to the public precisely. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. It's hard to imagine money being a factor in all this. Who could? Who would have thought of it? <laughs> you know? And <laughs> just uh, you know, cleaning it up, making it look better, and uh, padding the police budgets. Boy, we could. You know, we, this kind of thing has gone on for a long time throughout the twentieth century. Anyway, now, of course, I mean, money is a big factor in, in these big spectacles. One of the reasons why countries compete so intensely to become hosts of these events, of course, is the influx of visitors with money for such global sporting events. Uh, so it, it, you argue that the only thing that actually, actually increases violence against sex workers, as well as the land grabs that are involved in creating these new infrastructures and building these big uh, stadiums, there's rapid gentrification, the displacement of poor people under the auspices of promoting economic development. Please say more about that. Uh, sure. So we see this in a number of ways. So, for example, um, before the uh, Summer Olympics that were held in London, there were police raids, there was some violence from police against the, the women, but nothing compared to what was happening in South Africa and Brazil um, or Russia. But what was one example of a really disturbing form that the land grab took uh, was that the police would go to uh, the flats, the apartments uh, where sex workers were, and they would tell the landlords, uh, you know, you have... Um, uh, someone here engaging in prostitution, and because you are housing them and uh, own this property, we can therefore prosecute you for sex trafficking. And of course, the landlords uh, panic about this, and they evict the women. And so we have these evictions, and of course, these are in all the neighborhoods that uh, where the gentrification is happening. So there's that kind of uh, financial shift there that's happening sort of indirectly, but is still consequential. And then, you know, the task force that London had received about a million dollars um, to, to do their um, uh, anti-trafficking uh, awareness campaigns and responses. And when I interviewed the members of um, Scotland Yard and of then Mayor Boris Johnson's uh, administration who were working on this, uh, you know, they, they said, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't find any. Um, uh, and then they, uh, you know, and I was trying to figure out where all of this money had gone. Uh, and, and essentially, you know, it was all paying themselves consulting fees and paying uh, people to make uh, web content about, uh, you know, watching the signs and for 
you know, exploitation and all of that sort of thing. Um, so there's a lot of consulting that goes into it. So there's an anthropologist named Maria Augustine who coined this term for this, um, which is the rescue industry. Mm. Rescue industry. And I am reminded, having grown up in, in Boston, where there was something called urban renewal, uh, mm-hmm. cleaning out the slums. And I, I it did a lot of harm. It, it destroyed whole neighborhoods. But, you know, certain interests made a great deal of money. And now they're, you know, super high rent uh, units. And a prior guest on Keeping Democracy Alive very wisely urged that in order to really understand today, we should always think with history. In that vein, why is it useful to reach back into the incredibly significant women's movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries to understand the origins of today's anti-sex trafficking movement? What happened then, and, and, and why is it important to know about uh, uh, that, that the roots of, of the anti-sex trafficking movement in the uh, uh, women's movements of that period? Yeah, it's a, a very interesting history uh, to think about this concept of, of uh, so-called sexual slavery and specifically the invention of this term uh, white slavery or white sexual slavery. Uh, and so in the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, there was, again, a kind of strange coalition of bedfellows, which yes. included socialists, anarchists, it included the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, uh-huh early feminists, but also the KKK. Um, mm-hmm. So all sorts of people became invested in this this myth, this moral panic um, about um, the white slave trade. Um, and the idea um, behind this was that they thought that immigrant men were abducting and drugging and sex trafficking white women, that they were abducting them from uh, ice cream parlors and candy stores and um, luring them in, you know, through advertisements to, uh, you know, get into uh, dance or a theater or cabaret, and then that they would drug them and sell them into sexual slavery. And, you know, that was something that was pushed by uh, the, um, you know, major journalistic presses at the time, which, of course, many listeners will remember this muckraking journalism and the false stories that they would uh, print in order to sell papers. Mm-hmm. And so they spurred this this huge moral panic, which really was um, about racism. It was about xenophobia. It was about a fear of all of the recent um, immigrants um, and uh, both Asian, but then also um the uh, the so-called ethnic whites of uh, the Mediterranean Europe, and uh, mm. so when when you see the pictures from these, you'll see pictures of these sort of uh, vaguely ethnic or or you know indeterminate origin, but definitely not light-skinned men um, in the ice cream parlor, you know, making their moves on some very uh, pure <laughs> wealthy mm. woman with 
sensationalistic headlines about, you know, this is beginning her downfall. And so a, a lot of this was um, was uh, really driven by um, racism and xenophobia. They eventually passed the White Slave Trade Act in 1910, uh, which is uh, also known as the Mann Act. Uh, and that made it illegal to uh, take a woman across uh, state lines for immoral purposes. Um, and of course, this was enforced selectively. This was used to prosecute interracial couples, black men traveling with white women. Um, and uh, similar to other moral panics, the uh, satanic uh, child sex abuse panic that you talked about, or, um, you know, I would say the panics over uh, trans people using bathrooms uh, or uh, the um, uh, you know, um, panics that we've seen around trafficking that QAnon has um, generated with their conspiracy theories. Um, there is no there, there. <laughs> there was no white slave trade that was secretly happening, but a lot of harm was done by furthering this idea uh, that there was uh, this secret effort to uh, kidnap and sexually enslave uh, white women. Isn't it amazing how this thread is woven into so many <laughs> things in Western history of, uh, you know, a, a superior white race uh, keeping out the invaders, the people with darker skin. It just goes on and on and on and how you got to rescue them. Uh, it's just it's uh, it's really uh, appalling, I, I must say, but uh, it, it goes on and on, and uh, people profit from this this panic, this widespread panic, and uh, boy, it does it does a lot of harm. And the anti-sex trafficking movement has co-opted the terms sexual slavery and modern slavery, like the term white slavery, <laughs> and branded themselves yes. abolitionists. Which, which has a uniquely positive association with seeking justice. Are these apt comparisons? You know, I, I think a lot of the appropriation of the language of the 19th century um, uh, abolitionist movement, the anti-slavery movement, um, is in, in many ways a, an attempt for these groups to virtual, virtue signal or to shield them from criticism. Uh, it's also very charged language. So, you know, compared to when I, as a social scientist, talk about um, forced migration or uh, forced prostitution uh, that happens through um, forced migration or displacement, that sounds very academic. Um, it more accurately captures uh, the experiences of migrant women who um, are selling sex and many of them knew they would be selling sex, but didn't understand how bad the working conditions might be, wow. uh, who may still need recourse. Um, but if you come along and you say sexual slavery, that will grab attention, right? That will get headlines uh, and media attention uh, and, and that sort of thing. So once they start talking about um, sex slaves, that is something that, that is going to get uh, a lot of attention. And because we hold um, 
the people who campaigned against uh, slavery and who ended um, the black Atlantic uh, slave trade in the United States in such high regard, they're trying to skim some of that legitimacy um, Mm. off of that, is what I would say. I am not surprised. And it's also less known that that after uh, slavery was at least de jure uh, abolished, Mm. it never, it wasn't, slavery actually did continue by many other names. Of course. But after that, they just sort of walked away from it. The abuses, the Jim Crow laws, they were like, oh, no, no, our work is done. And right. uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't, ha- the reality was, was less good <laughs> than they pretended sure. it to be. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, the, uh, our guest today is Gregory Mitchell, Chair and Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Williams College. His new book is Panics Without Borders. How global sporting events drive myths about sex trafficking, and and I did want to ask. I mean, again, thinking about these these global sporting events, you know, these big glitzy things that uh, a tremendous amount of money has been spent on. Um, how? What's the place of? How does sex trafficking? I mean, I wouldn't even think you know to associate the two things. Uh, what is it about these big events? that uh, uh, it brings in the idea and, and enables the, the panic about, uh, about sex trafficking. Why these, what's the connection? Well, the anti-trafficking movement was really picking up steam in um, the late 1990s and the early 2000s. And increasingly, they were very focused on awareness and spotting the signs and, uh, you know, trying to get people to be vigilant. And if you see something, say something. And this creates the conditions where um, people are hyper vigilant and they think that things are happening all around them. You can remember uh, just after 9-11 how, how much yeah, people yeah. Were, were on edge looking for, for things. And it's really 2006 at the German World Cup that some of these organizations start saying, hey, there's going to be a big influx of these like guys who are rowdy and they're, you know, these soccer hooligans or whatever. Mm. Um, are, you know, are, are they going to be um, purchasing sex? Because Germany also had uh, legalized uh, sex work. And so it started that they were generating these numbers and then out of nowhere it was no peer-reviewed study it was uh, near as i can tell an offhand comment by a swedish feminist organization that that said you know we could have forty thousand um women trafficked into germany for the world cup and then all of the, the shelters in germany uh started saying wait what like you know if you only have like 40 beds in the whole uh, city of Berlin, what are we going to do with 40,000 um, victims? And then, uh, of course, they found none. Um, mm-hmm. But when the South African World Cup rolled around, journalists had already seen this figure. So they said, oh, yeah, well, you know, Germany was going to be 40,000. So the World Cup in South Africa must be 40,000. And uh, we also see this not only at the World Cup and the uh, Summer Olympic Games, but the Super Bowl every year. I see these same um, panicked headlines. I see the same pattern of police asking for additional resources. Um, and then uh, we also sometimes hear this about other large events like 
Formula One races or political conventions, or if you really want to to get a sense of how this um, panic has just spread, the, you know, the slow creep of this into the ever more um, ludicrous. Uh, if you and your listeners remember in 2017, there was that total solar eclipse that cut across that slim, slim band uh, of the United States. Well, the attorneys general in Kentucky, Wyoming, and Nebraska started to run um, uh, all of these programs and wanted extra money for overtime uh, and to um, do trainings and awareness uh, because they were saying that there was going to be a huge influx of sex trafficking for the solar eclipse. Um, and they were especially concerned <laughs> for um, uh, about the two minutes and 40 seconds of total darkness because the, the uh, kids might be separated from their parents. And so they had all these headlines, Wyoming solar eclipse, a hotbed for sex trafficking, uh, as solar eclipse nears, the fight against human trafficking is ramping up. Seminars teach human intervention, trafficking intervention ahead of solar eclipse events. A pimp will make $1,000 a day per girl during the eclipse. Um, and, and, of course, none of this actually happened. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but it gives you a sense of just how easy it is for this unfounded claim um, that is sensationalized and, and not true, but to take hold. Um, it spurs something in the imagination, which mm. is probably also why we saw it co-opted so much by uh, QAnon mm. um, and so forth. Yeah, interesting. Capturing the imagination. I, I found it frankly amazing during the 2020 campaign when so many of the, the Trumpists were uh, imagining uh, vast uh, organizations dedicated to uh, pedophilia. Like mm -hmm. the Democratic Party is all about abusing children. Moral panic. It, it, I guess it's, and it connects with people. Somehow it connects. People are afraid of it. Ah, yes, fear and reassurance, important factors mm -hmm. in politics. Uh, uh, that's, right. that's for sure. Uh, and of course, that's what led to, um, you know, no doubt remember uh, Pizzagate, the, yes. the shooting at Comet Pizza, where um, the man thought that there were sex trafficked children in the in the basement of the pizza parlor, uh, by trafficked by Hillary Clinton, and he was, you know, going to go there. Um, so it can have, you know, really deadly consequences. Yes, yes. And I understand it's very good pizza there. I have never been to that place. <laughs> I, I had neither. <laughs> yeah, my niece lives near there, or used to live near there. I, I hear it's good pizza, and it was a good, good, good place. Uh, and, you know, this whole Puritanism, is it's fascinating, the whole reality of, of puritanism i mean you talk about uh th there have been people in in little portsmouth new hampshire where i am there's been uh uh plays put on where sometimes men are dressed in drag and somehow mm. somehow these wacko cute people imagine that that's all about child abuse and it's like it, it's bizarre to me it I, and it and it does seem to me that in the 21st century the most those most aggressive against pornography for example are generally the biggest consumers of pornography a little bit of hypocrisy there similarly rather than being 
motivated by a consensus of the international community, the often violent state-sponsored events to squelch not only sex trafficking, but sex work as well, are largely stoked by this puritanical, oh-so-holy United States. Please explain. Yes. You've, you've, you've hit on a couple of uh, really important points there. One is the link between the anti-pornography movement and the anti-sex trafficking movement. Um, so back in the 70s and 80s, there was a, um, a very large and effective uh, group called Women Against Pornography, yes. um, which had people like Andrea Dworkin, Andrea Dworkin and, yes. Hinnon, and uh, Laura Lederer, um, and interestingly, once uh, Women Against Pornography sort of um, ran out of steam in the 90s, then we see a shift of all of those same people beginning um, groups like the Coalition Against Trafficking Women. And so Laura Lederer went from being a leader in Women Against Pornography to being uh, George uh, w. Bush's um, anti-sex trafficking czar. So she went from being uh, a radical feminist to working in a Republican uh, White House. So we get, again, this idea mm-hmm. of kind of these strange bedfellows. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think they would agree on abortion or um, a lot of other social issues, but they're willing to cooperate around this idea. And uh, so, so there is this connection. There's also... Uh, anti-trafficking groups, uh, evangelical Christian ones like Exodus Cry. Um, Exodus Cry has now branched out and started um, a whole sister organization called Trafficking Hub, which is currently leading efforts um, to shut down uh, the website Pornhub. Um, And that's something that they've gotten a lot of press and publicity for. They've gotten uh, you know, just a couple days ago, Nick Kristoff retweeted them. Uh, he wrote a whole um, uh, opinion piece a few months ago, uh, citing them and talking about the work they were doing. Um, but I think a lot of people see that and they don't realize that this is actually a fundamentalist religious organization. And in the case of Exodus Cry, they're the anti-trafficking ministry of the International House of Prayer, which is a huge megachurch with uh, offices all around the world. And they were the ones who, um, uh, if readers ever saw the documentary, uh, God Loves Uganda, that was the church that was bankrolling and um, fueling the so-called Kill the Gays bill uh, in Uganda. So you've got these really strange things that I think a lot of you know, well-meaning liberals uh, don't necessarily realize once you scratch the surface how many of these organizations that are opposing um, sex trafficking, uh, you know, which, of course, sounds like, well, that must be a good thing. Who wants to, right, sure. <laughs> who's going to not be for that? But then they also have these other ties to and links to um organizations uh, and causes and beliefs that I think a lot of progressives uh, really would want no no part of. Um, And so it's very difficult to disentangle these um, funds and so forth. Uh, Yeah, interesting. You know, cracking open the door by by saying, you know, sex trafficking, we got to help these these victims. But what's really going on is uh, Puritanism uh, and the—it's so 
interesting to me. I bet there have been studies done. I don't know of uh, the uh, the sources of you know the uh, excessive cracking down uh, and and how much they are actually the uh, abusers more than the vast majority of the population. I can't mm-hmm. help but think so. And so the, the reality is, I mean, sex work has been around forever. Absolutely sure. forever uh, around the and but sex workers around the world are speaking up more and more for fairness and justice. And as you said, it's been legalized in many places. Gosh, it would be nice to get it, you know, safe and protected. Mm-hmm. What a concept, you know. It, uh, but but anti-prostitution activists have so thoroughly corrupted our understanding of what constitutes sex trafficking, partly by conflating it with sex work. You argue we need an entirely new vocabulary for the phenomenon. How do you define sex trafficking, and how is it distinct from sex work? And talk about this new vocabulary for for the phenomenon mm-hmm. that you think would be useful. Yeah. So the one of the the big problems is that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's not really clear that anybody is using the same definition. Uh, Many different organizations um, have different versions. Um, Some of them are codified uh, more clearly, like from the UN in their Palermo Protocol, um, and some of them in the US are, are highly expansive. But the important point is that over time we have seen the definition of trafficking expand and expand and expand such that initially we associated it with movements right movement across a border or you uh-huh. know, movement uh to, to somewhere and now all of the anti-trafficking organizations say oh no 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 movement is not required um uh to have sex trafficking if you are um coerced into um, sex work, uh, that is uh, not just pimping or sexual assault or sexual exploitation, that is trafficking, you have been sex trafficked. Um, And so as the definition has gotten more and more broad, uh, people who don't believe that you can meaningfully consent to sell sex, if some of these um, evangelical groups or some of the um, uh, feminist groups. And I should hasten to add that a lot of the sex worker rights organizations are definitely uh, feminist organizations, right? Um, there are pro-sex and pro-sex work um, feminist groups, but the, the anti-prostitution groups won't even use the word sex work. They will say prostituted women or women in prostitution because they don't acknowledge sex work as work. And so if you believe that you can't consent to sell sex, then all prostitution um, is therefore non-consensual, is therefore rape, is therefore sex trafficking. So when they start giving statistics and, and numbers, uh, they're they're really just counting sex work and then saying, you know, this is their projection about sex trafficking. So whenever you see these things, you have to be really careful which group is this and which definition are they subscribing to. Um, And then also very, very importantly, is that um, until uh, just a few years ago, uh, there was what we sometimes uh, refer to as the anti-prostitution loyalty oath, which Mm. um, uh, the Supreme Court um, 
struck down um, a few years ago on First Amendment grounds. But for many, many years, it was uh, illegal uh, to give government money to uh, organizations um, that um, uh, did not support uh, the um, diminishment of uh, prostitution, of sex tourism, etc. So organizations that wanted to have decriminalization of sex work that wanted to have sex workers as leaders and policymaking in um, in these task forces and so forth were not eligible um, for funding. So all of the money that was going into anti-sex trafficking was going into um, the anti-prostitution, puritanical kind of hardliners. And then once that was struck down, that theoretically opened up those groups to funding. But once you are a regular recipient of grant funding, um, you know, it's easy to keep that getting renewed every year. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty hard once, you know, if you're not entrenched. And then more recently, oh, just a couple of years ago, um, George Soros um, with the Open Society Foundation brought essentially the same case back before the court again in the international context because he said, you know, the U.S. groups and these groups are so embedded and we know that foreign groups aren't you know, covered by the First Amendment, but the law still stands that USAID money cannot be given um, to countries where they um, are not on board with this pledge um, to eradicate uh, prostitution. And so Brazil, quite famously in the 2000s, had lost $40 million in USAID money um, because they had sex workers who were doing um, you know, the policy development as, as stakeholders and sex work again is decriminalized in Brazil. So it's a big cudgel, big stick that the U S has when they want to implement foreign policy, um, changes. And so there are very few countries in the developing world with the economic clout, um, to say no to that, but the Supreme court ruled against Soros. And so these organizations, um, still can't get USAID money, even though I promise you the sex workers in Brazil, uh, you know, if you're trying to educate them about HIV, about trafficking, um, about exploitation or sexual health or other issues, uh, they will listen to another sex worker any day before they will listen to me as a gringo with my PhD and my, you know, clipboard and recorder or, you know, a bunch of my grad students running around, you know, trying to lecture them about condoms or prep or whatever. Like we know that the most effective way is peer led education. And yet we can't uh, legally do that. And that's something that's been upheld through um, uh, the Obama administration, uh, it continuing on in, into Biden. Um, this has been uh, upheld by the left and the right, both. Because, again, nobody wants to be seen as soft on uh, sex trafficking or prostitution. Oh, yeah. Images. Images of looking so pure, so good. And uh, knowing better, having better uh, morals than 
those people in those other countries. And, of course, having the money to, uh, to throw around and, and, and what that does to it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about something that uh, doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, our, our guest today is Gregory Mitchell, who's got a new book out called Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths about sex trafficking and and what that really does and and the message that it gives to to women really and and to uh, as you say you know peer to peer is is best how uh learning and 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 helping happens but looking down at people and making judgments about them oh man that that uh, we know how how well that works and and the money the power, the political power, the cultural power, neoliberalism as opposed to liberalism, which is quite different. Neoliberalism Ooh. and globalism remain powerful forces which often undercut the power and the legitimacy of otherwise justly and appropriately sovereign states. Uh, they, they, these neoliberals and globalists have... They, they like to have the power over the, the otherwise sovereign states. How has this phenomenon fueled the problem that you seek to address? Um, of the, the, sorry, I want to make sure I understand the question. Uh, the the role of the the globalization and yeah, uh, and, and, and and soft power. Yeah, and and the panics that uh, the, the money that's made, the power that's right. that's exercised in in clamping down on this and using these panics. How how can uh, th this phenomenon? How has this phenomenon of globalism fueled the problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in order to complete the research for the book, as I mentioned, I had been spending many years um, uh, since 2005 or so in Brazil. And so while I really began the project uh, in in that country for the World Cup and the Olympics, um, I then said, how, how is it that this pattern keeps playing out at all these other countries, all these other recent and upcoming host countries. And so I went to South Africa to um, see how they had handled this during um, the last World Cup. Um, and the same pattern existed there, that there had been a huge panic, um, lots of um, police uh, raids and so forth. But, you know, the police in South Africa are a product of apartheid. They never existed to protect the the rights of the poor and the marginal. So, um, you know, they committed horrific abuses against the sex workers. Um, uh, the sex workers, you know, said they would abduct them and, and beat them. They would do things um, like put pepper spray on their vaginas. They oh would dump them out in the in the woods. And this is, you know, at the behest of, of human rights organizations saying, oh, we better clean up the prostitution. Well, what that looks like if you don't have cultural competence and you just fly in and out, parachuting in and out around the globe um, as a missionary group or um, secular NGO uh, is, is that you can spur these real harms. Um, and so then I also went to uh, London, um, to Doha uh, several times, which is the host of the World right. Cup that's starting next week, uh, as well as to Russia. Um, and so while each location does have, you know, slightly different um, 
uh, operations and issues, depending on what's happening in Russia, for example, uh, the police run all of the commercial sex. Uh, and so it's very easy <laughs> to just turn that off uh, without actually having to, to go and do raids and so forth. Um, so the global pattern is interesting in that these events have so much money, but the states also have so much invested in the the image and not having the image tarnished, which we've seen a lot, I think, with um, Cutter recently, who are very concerned about um, bad publicity and have arrested journalists um, who have tried to report on labor abuses and, and so forth. Um, or, you know, when Brazil was hosting the Summer Olympics, they hired um, Rudy Giuliani's um, consulting firm to help them to implement a sort of broken windows um, approach um, before. So you would see street kids and there'd be five police, you know, bullying and badgering them, or you'd see a huge group of police chasing off a, a homeless uh, beggar. So you can see the way that these ideologies um, circulate around the globe, but then also how these policing tactics and so forth um, uh, also draw on um, these other global instances. I also, you know, I met with the FBI that oversees uh, the U.S. assets during these major sporting events, uh, and they offer to do trainings for the local um, police forces and so on. Mm. It's kind of a courtesy, but that also gives you a sense of the kind of ways in which power and politics and money all end up colliding around these major events. Yeah, and we've seen uh, the police help that uh, happens uh, throughout uh, Latin America uh, from the United States um, it, it just so often. And I can't help but be reminded of the war on drugs, which has... Oh, sure. Yeah, it, It's achieved very, the opposite of its stated goal. It has driven... It hasn't wiped out the demand. It's driven the demand underground and guaranteed a highly profitable crime syndicate, which, while doing nothing to curtail Mm -hmm. demand, I wonder if in claiming to be working toward a goal of restricting and controlling all prostitution, anti-sex trafficking organizations actually create the very (laughs) exploitation that they purport to abhor. Does this practice actually end up pushing minors deeper into the underground sexual economy? Yeah, it it really does. And one example of that that I can point to that I uh, witnessed firsthand was the opening day of the World Cup um, in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, There was a, a sex tourist bar uh, that had the misfortune of being directly across from the, the Jumbotron, the FIFA Fan Fest is what it's called, on Copacabana Beach. Uh, and all of the, so you have, you know, tons and tons and tons of, of fans, you know, watching the game. And sure. then the closest bar across the street you know, typically has about 100 women working, selling sex. Now, I had been doing research in that bar for many, many years and had never seen a whiff of underage prostitution. There are no pimps operating there. Um, uh, there's, <laughs> there's even an entry uh, for it in uh, Fromer's guidebook as like a place to like people watch. Um, 
you know, so so it, it was not anything that you know felt um, you know overly uh, sleazy or dangerous, but you know, women were working um, quite legally there. Sure. Well, once they shut it down, um, uh, which they did the morning of the World Cup, O Globo, which is sort of like their Fox News uh, major uh, news network, came with police together um, to shut it down the, the morning of the, the opening ceremonies for the World Cup. And then that night, um, all of the fans and the clients came to the bar and realized it was closed. All of the women who worked there um, came and realized it was closed. And so then they just all stood next to the bar in the plaza and had their big party and sold sex. And then I began to to realize as I was looking around in the alleys and in uh, dimly lit parts of the parking lot and so forth, um, there were teenage girls who, you know, looked to me to certainly be uh, under the age of 18, which is the legal age to sell sex in Brazil, seemed to me to be 15, 16 years old were in fact working around the edges that never would have been tolerated. Um, not only because the bar owners wouldn't want to get in trouble, but because the women themselves do not want that, um, do not want the competition, do not want, um, uh, to have their workplace shut down. And so the women, as well as the, the owners, you know, really, really police, um, for underage um, prostitution. But then I began to see night after night, because this you know, was before the World Cup, all 32 days of the World Cup, and then after the World Cup, um, began seeing a slow uptick in these underage girls uh, who uh, were there and selling sex, um, but only like right around the edges. And there were police everywhere. And sex tourists would go and ask them where, uh, you know, this sex club or this brothel was and get directions. So the whole idea that the, the state or the police actually cared about any of this or cared about the child exploitation uh, was very clearly false. Hmm. But none of that made it under the news. The only thing that made it under the news was uh, the, the display of the police storming the bar um, in the in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah it reminds me of the uh, uh stonewall raids that there used to be back in sure. <laughs> in new york yeah that did a lot of good my goodness gracious <laughs> now yeah. the world cup in in doha uh, qatar is coming up really soon uh just at the end of 2022 you say the sex workers in doha are are in an even more vulnerable position than those at previous world cups but this is it's a muslim country why why is how does that play into it how does that make it uh, more dangerous perhaps i was really surprised the first time i went to doha um because i was um staying in a major uh western uh hotel um and uh, it, alcohol is strict is very uh, restricted um, in in Doha. It's not a completely dry country, um, but uh, it's generally illegal except in uh, kind of um, bars of high end Western hotels, and even there, it's very expensive. But I went in there, and um, within a few minutes of sitting down uh, and 
Asian woman who um, eventually, as she began chatting with me, um, uh, really she was from um, uh, Hong Kong. Um, and she made it very clear that she was a, a sex worker and wanted to know if I was staying there and if I wanted to go upstairs and, um, you know, purchase services. And I was so surprised that this was happening right out in the open of, of this fancy hotel. And then I looked around and I realized there were all of these other women there um, uh, of a very similar profile. And then the bartender who was also a migrant because uh, 94% of people in Qatar are actually not Qatari citizens. They're uh, expats, foreign workers, um, laborers, et cetera, uh, non-citizens and not eligible for citizenship. So this uh, Filipino woman behind the bar said, oh, is she bothering you? Because the hotel has an arrangement with them. And so we'll just tell them to leave you alone. Uh, and I was shocked because I thought, you know, this is a strictly Muslim country. Like, they wouldn't allow this. Uh, you know, homosexuality is illegal. Um, uh, sex outside of marriage is illegal. Uh, how is it possible that this is permitted? And so... I began to go <laughs> to all of uh, the major Western bars and to look at this. And I began to realize, oh, here's where all of the women from Southeast Asia are. Oh, here in this place, there are some women uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa. Or here, um, uh, I don't want to get the hotel name wrong and then <laughs> spread misinformation. But uh, some hotel. A, a very high, very high-end <laughs> hotel. Uh, that was known, it was all Russian Ukrainian women. And so um, everything was very clearly divided um, up in this way. And it was so visible. But also, as I chatted with the, the women, it had to be very careful because I didn't want to get them you know, in trouble or sure. anything. Uh, they would talk about going home and visiting their kids and sending money, but then coming back. Now, that does not fit what we think of as sex trafficking, but they absolutely had third-party managers of some kind who were working with the businesses, um, you know, moving the women, facilitating the women's travel. But the women, uh, you know, I'm sure we're not having um, absolutely perfect working conditions, but nonetheless mm. would meet definitions of sex trafficking, as opposed to the male migrant workers. Um, uh, who are completely hidden away out of sight in these labor camps, um, are not allowed out. Their movement is severely restricted. Um, uh, our estimates are that about 7,000 of them have died um, building the stadiums for the World Cup, essentially wow. just yeah. worked to death in the heat. Um, uh, and uh, that was even before COVID began sweeping through the, the camps. So I became very struck by the hyper- visibility of the women who were doing something that was you know very illegal and we would think would be looked down upon uh compared to this desire to have uh you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of male migrant workers just be kept out of sight after they themselves were the ones who um built all of the stadiums uh, in the peak of the, the heat uh, because it is off cycle. Uh, the um, World Cup uh, that's beginning next week uh, normally would be in the summer, but it's too hot <laughs> for the, the fans uh, and for the players. The and so the they players. changed it. Yeah. 
Well, it, it does bring up the, the issue of, you know, instead of clamping down on sex work and therapeutic policing or rescuing during the events, it might be, might be more appropriate and productive to strengthen labor protections and sex worker rights. And I think this applies to, you know, the whole drug war as well. Uh, say more about that, please. Sure. So a lot of us who work in the um, sex worker uh, advocacy um, sphere uh, have learned a lot from harm reduction models practiced um, by people who are are working with folks with addiction. And so um, within this context, the sex work context, instead of following a rescue and rehabilitation model um, or a therapeutic policing model where you say, well, we're going to rescue these women and we're going to make them productive members of society, we're going to send them to uh, parenting classes or, or yeah. um, you know, in the, in the global south, it's we're going to teach them to sew so they can go work in a, in a factory. Um, instead, the, a labor rights approach, a harm reduction approach, says if the sex worker needs a clean needle, then they get a clean needle. Right. If what they need is a bed for the night, then they get a bed for the night. And if what they need is an exit strategy from prostitution, then they can have that. But we don't assume that they want any of those things. So it's all about meeting people where they are. Uh, and so that, I think, is a much better approach um, than uh, attempting to uh, uh, beat the women into submission yeah. by, by way of, <laughs> of calling it rescue. Rescue, yeah. Just a quick one. Puta feminismo. What is that? What, that, what is that? And how might it, what, what does it offer to this conversation? Yeah, so puta feminismo, um, which uh, um, literally translates uh, to, to whore feminism, uh, right. it actually emerged in, in Argentina and then continued um, to spread among activists into Brazil, where, where it's really running strong. And so the, the idea behind this is really that these sex workers um, have said, we need a feminist politics that embraces and centers uh, the voices and, and actions of, of sex workers, although clearly they're reclaiming the word puta in, in that context. So it's a bit more provocative. Um, and that has really guided a lot of their um, protest efforts, a lot of their policy efforts. Um, it has allowed them to um, stage some really interesting uh, and kind of fun protests and ways of yeah. getting uh, attention um, for for their cause, and so they have really called for this um, uh, sex worker led form of feminism that really embraces human sexuality. Imagine that reality. <laughs> hard, Precisely hard to believe. Well, very interesting discussion. Something that uh, you know remains hidden, and as the uh, World Cup begins, uh, we probably won't see this on the TV, but it's there. Well, our guest today has been author of the a new book called Panics Without Borders, How Global Sporting Events Drive Myths About Sex Trafficking. Gregory Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, yeah, just uh, respecting people. What a concept. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very much my honor. The official 2022 Qatar World Cup theme song.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.